And I would invite you to take your Bibles, uh, whatever form you have your Bible in, maybe it is a, a written text in the Bible, maybe it's an electronic, and find the book of Hosea. Hosea is going to be in the Old Testament near the end. It's going to be right after the book of Daniel. And this morning as we prepare to launch into this series, I want to just read a section for you from Hosea chapter 2. It's actually a section in which you're going to get a glimpse of, of, of God's heart. And what we're going to see in our sermon this morning is, is, is God, like so many of us, who sometimes is very frustrated with his children that he loves so much, and other times he's just speaking such, so tenderly to them. In Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, we get one of those tender parts. And I want you just to listen to the heart of God in these words. Hosea chapter 2, verses 14. Through 23. Therefore, now I am going to allure her, God speaking of his nation as if they were his bride. I am going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I, I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant for her, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. The word of the Lord. A word that has fallen on hard times these days is the word drama. We have drama kings and drama queens. We talk about the drama at work. I just can't handle the drama anymore at work. Or we talk about the drama in our community or the drama in our neighborhood. And from the way that we use the word currently, drama is just an over-emotional response, largely for the purpose of getting attention. But the idea of drama in its best form is really something good. You see, drama was originally a, a way, a form of telling or reenacting a story, a story that reflects life. 
Drama often takes place on, on a stage. And, and we follow as the audience, we follow the actors as they live out the drama, as they build plot, as they show us the, the conflict, as they then bring the story to a resolution. And the story as it reflects life not only draws us into the story, but somehow it speaks to us. It can speak to us emotionally. It can make a point. It can move us to action. A good drama engages us in the story. The first three chapters of the book of Hosea are what some have called a prophetic drama. And as we look at these first three chapters, we're going to see the humble obedience of Hosea. And we are going to scratch our head at the unfaithfulness of Gomer and her willingness to go back into her old life. We are going to ponder and just wonder at some of the names that Hosea gives to the children and why he would give them these names. And it's all part of this prophetic drama. And we are going to be challenged to try to figure out what does all of this have to do with us in 2022. I want to let you know from the outset the prophetic drama that unfolds in Hosea chapters 1 through 3 is not a treatise on marriage. This is not God giving us marriage principles. What this section shows us is another facet of our God. We will see this morning God as a lover. We will see the drama of Hosea and Gomer, and we're going to be challenged to look beneath the surface of the play that unfolds, to look beneath the surface of the drama on the stage, as it were. And I want us this morning to see the heart of God, to see the pain of God, to see the desire of God to be restored in relationship to those he loves most. So as we open the curtain on Hosea chapter 1, we will discover this point. As a wounded lover, God shows unfathomable grace. Hosea 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. Let me re just really quick. Remember we talked last week. We gave the overview. This was the golden age of Judah and Israel. They were powerful militarily. They were sound economically. They were in a good place, both nations. And so Hosea speaks. Because, you know, when everything is going good, when everything's going good with the economy everything's going good with our nation, and things seem to be just right, there is a tendency to forget the God who brought us there. 
Here's the word of the Lord. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Here's what we don't have. We don't have Hosea going, say what? You want me to what? No, very next sentence. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. God's word to Hosea, God's command, go marry a prostitute. Now, some have tried to say that Gomer, Hosea's wife, was initially just this really good woman who became unfaithful. The, the, the text does not allow that. The text does not allow that because God wanted to reveal to the nation that not only were what they were doing to him was worshiping other gods, it was deeply hurting them, him by their sin. They were showing the deepest of unfaithfulness. So in verse 3, Hosea goes and marries Gomer. As we concluded last week, we need to remember obedience to God is not always easy. In fact, obedience to God will sometimes bring pain and struggle. And yet, in the long run, it is always the right thing to do. So Hosea and Gomer are married, and note what we have in verse uh, 4. Well, we'll pick it up in verse 3. She conceived and bore him a son. In fact, we're going to see three children born, but I want you to see something in the text. Remember, oftentimes I'll tell you, read for detail. So in verse 3, she bore him a son. But note the way that it changes in verse 6. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Verse 8, after she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Why do I bring that out? It is most possible, in fact, many, much scholarship lends itself to this, that Jezreel is the son of the union of Hosea and Gomer. But the other two children are the result of Gomer back into prostitution. So they aren't actually Hosea's children. That will help us understand the names, but it also helps me understand the man Hosea. Because by naming them, he's taking the responsibility of caring for them. So here we have it. Name the first son, verse 4, call him Jezreel. Because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. You know, you think about it, those of you who have children, some of you have a reason for, the why, re, why, for why you named your children what you named them, right? Uh, our our uh, second daughter, her middle name is Eileen, and that is, be, that is in honor of a, a woman named Eileen who was a great help to Charlene in times when life was really hard for her and, and all. And I remember Eileen coming to visit us once just after we had gotten married down in Winona Lake, Indiana, and she gave Charlene a hug and she goes, you know, statistically, kiddo, you shouldn't be here right now. Aren't you glad our God doesn't believe in statistics? And when we had a daughter, we wanted to honor Eileen. Our, 
Our son's middle name is Parker, and that's another family that had influence in our lives. Our, our first daughter is Bethany, and, and that was a, a name of somebody Charlene used to babysit and just always loved that name and loved the family that had reared that child. And so it, for us, there were always these meanings, and I imagine you do too. And here in the Bible, we have names with meanings, and so name him Jezreel. Jezreel, if you go back into 2 Kings, Jezreel was the site of a massacre. There was a guy by the name of Jehu, and he was under God's command to go punish the house of Ahab. But Jehu got a little overzealous in his punishment. And not only did he take out Ahab as he was supposed to and take out the wicked queen Jezebel, he went on to attack even more the house of Judah. And he, he, he just kind of did a, a, a complete purge of the land, and it solidified his power. So in a sense, he was obedient, but he was so overzealous that God said, we have to deal with this. And so God is saying, through this coming child, Jezreel, at the place where Jehu's dynasty began, it will end. Uh, it will end in the same way it began, and he said, in that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. God does not take it lightly when you and I take away from his commands. He doesn't take it lightly when we add to. We're to stay in line with them. But God dealt with that situation. And in fact, in 733 B.C., a guy by the name of Tiglath-Pileser III defeated for the final time the armies of the northern kingdom. By this time in history, there was Judah in the south and Israel in the north. They had divided because of Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam. And so Tiglath-Pileser comes through. He's an Assyrian, and they defeat the northern kingdom at the valley of Jezreel. For about 10 years after that, the northern kingdom exists under all these little puppet kings that are just placed in there. But finally, eventually, the nation, the 10 tribes of the north, are completely taken over by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians scatter them out all over the area. The bow. The bow is a symbol of power, and it was broken according to the word of the Lord. Gomer has a second child. Gomer conceived again gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruamah, which means not loved. What a hard name. I am not sure how much this child suffered because of her name. We're not told. But God wanted to make a point through this prophetic drama. He wanted the nation to know that he would no longer show her the compassion and the mercy, that he's no longer going to pursue her because she has strayed so far away from him that he was turning his affection away from Israel and to the southern kingdom of, of Judah. And Israel had taken this approach. We're God's children. We're descendants from Abraham. So we'll always be God's children. No matter what we do, we're going to be God's children. We can do whatever we want because we're descendants of Abraham. 
we can, we can worship whomever we want because we're descendants of Abraham. We're always God's children. And God wanted them to say, no, there's a time. There's a time when you stray so far from me, I pull my love back. Gomer has a third child. She had weaned Lo-Ruama, so that means Lo-Ruama is now somewhere between three and five years old. And she has another child, and, and, and again, the way the text reads, we're not certain that this is, Gomer, this is Hosea's son, but here's this son, and he's to name him Loami, which means not my people. The ultimate rejection of God is saying, no, you, you're not my people because you don't act like my people. And so our covenant has been completely broken. And can you just imagine for a moment the extent of the pain and the heartache for God to say these things. God has been wounded by the action of his people. He has been wounded by their betrayal. I think you and I need to remember something. Our decisions, our actions, the manner in which we live our lives on a day-in and day-out basis, even if we don't think we hurt another person, we do affect God. He does take seriously how we live. And when you and I live for self, when we sin, when we put ourselves on the throne of our own lives, that I'm the only person that matters and I make all my own decisions, we put distance between us and God and he is wounded. I think sometimes we don't think that God feels. I think sometimes we don't think that God has emotions. And I think we need to remember that God gave us emotions. He's the creator of emotions. Our God is an emotional God and he feels it when we sin. One would expect this chapter just to end right there, but there's this strange reversal that happens. Look at verse 10. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together and they will appoint one leader and will come, out up, come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. You would expect that it would just be kind of over and that there had to be some kind of a penance and, and there had to be some kind of payment for reconciliation. But, but God is, is greater than we can ever imagine. And all of a sudden we are confronted in three verses with grace. You're not my people. I don't love you anymore. But you know what? One day, one day you're going to be my people again. One day where there was war, there's going to be peace. One day I'm going to bring you all back together again. One day there's going to be one leader over all of you. God is speaking words of restoration to a group of people who deserve nothing but punishment. And he calls them children of the living God, not just my people. And he takes them to that place of defeat, that place where the bow was broken to Israel. And he says... It, one day it's going to be a place of reunion. What gives? What's the point? Why is this here? 
I think we see God in that balance of holiness and justice and yet grace and mercy. And he, he wants us to see that tension. He's speaking restoration because God is a God of grace and God's grace extends to everyone, even to those who seemingly deserve it the least. Is God wounded? Yes. Is God hurt beyond belief? Yes. Will God deal with sin harshly? Yes. But God's deepest desire is to restore. That's what grace is all about. Just like the names of these children, maybe you've ruined your name. Maybe you've ruined your reputation. Maybe you've messed up completely. I've, I've sat in my office with people that would just bury their face in their hands and say, Pastor Scott, you don't know what a mess I've made of things. Maybe some of us here have drifted so far from God, we don't even remember what it's like to have a relationship with him. But God knows that. God hurts for that. God hurts with you. And I think this opening message in Hosea is God allows us in his grace, in the fact that he made us as free choosing beings, he gives us the freedom, if we want, to drift far from him. And yet, his desire is that we come back. His desire is that when we turn around, that we see that the door to relationship with him is open and that the light is on. When I was a kid, I had to be 14 years old. I, and I think some of you have heard this story before, but I'm getting to the age where I get to repeat myself. Uh, I'm downstairs watching TV. It was a Saturday afternoon. I had been out somewhere, rode my bike home, noticed that my dad was outside under our redbud tree at our house at the corner of Kerwin and Lewis in Salina, Kansas, the garden spot of the United States. And uh, I noticed that dad was out there sitting under the tree and talking to my next-door neighbor. And I'm watching TV down there in the basement. Our basement wasn't very finished. <laughs> we lived in a parsonage, sorry. And, uh, and so, you know, you would come down the basement stairs and where there could have been a wall, there was just an open space. And I'm watching some ball game or something. I hadn't gotten into watching golf yet, so it was probably a football game, a college game. I'm sitting there. My dad comes down. He sits on the stairs so he can look down where I'm at in the TV room. And he told me he'd just been talking to our neighbor. Our neighbor's son, who was a year or two older than me, had just gotten kicked out of the house because he'd been caught with drugs. And my dad was telling the neighbor, go get your son and bring him home. And my dad looked at me and he told me that. He said, son, I want you to know something. It doesn't matter what you do. 
It doesn't matter what kind of trouble you get into. It doesn't matter how big you think the failure is. I want you to know that you can always come home. The door is always open. And I believe that is the initial message of God to Hosea. Yes, of God through Hosea. Yes, Israel, you have messed up terribly and you have offended me terribly and we're going to see some of that offense. And you have strayed so far away. But I want you to know, Israel, the door is always open, my child. You can always come home. And that leads us to chapter 2. Because we see in chapter 2 that as a wounded yet holy lover, God still deals with sin. Chapter 2, the first uh, verses 2 through 5 say this. And by the way, chapter 1 really should end in chapter 2. The last verse, the first verse of chapter 2 says, Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. God reverses those names. We'll see that again. Rebuke your mother, he says. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife, for I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face, the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert. I will turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children, because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my water and my food. Do you get the drama here? I'm going to bring you to the place of peace. You're my children. No, you're not. You've sinned. It's back and forth. It's that wrestling match. And what God wants his nation to understand is that any form of idolatry is spiritual adultery in God's eyes. You see, Israel had started going back to Baal worship. So he's not really talking to Hosea's wife, Gomer, here. He's talking to Israel as if she were her wife. And they were going back to Baal worship. Baal was a god that was throughout the ancient Middle East. He was, Baal was a fertility god. And he was an agricultural god. So when it rained, they would thank Baal for the crops. When, and and when, when the crops were plentiful, there was Baal. And when there was drought, they would cry out to Baal. And when they had children, they would thank Baal. And, and, and so Baal had become right there on a par with Yahweh for the people in Israel, in the northern kingdom. Baal required sacrifices. God required sacrifices, but Baal's sacrifices weren't to atone you for their, your sin. Baal's sacrifices were to appease him and, and kind of get him to do what you wanted him to do. If I sacrifice more to Baal, then he'll give me more rain. Whereas the sacrifices to Yahweh were, I'm a sinner, I come to Yahweh, I sacrifice, and he forgives my sin. And sometimes Baal's sacrifices were human sacrifices. And sometimes the sacrifices to Baal were to engage in immoral acts with a temple prostitute. And God says, all the things that Baal does or you think he does, I'm going to reverse. So you think he makes the land fertile? I'm going to turn it into a desert. You think that he gives you crops? I'm going to make sure you don't have any. God's warning is that he will take care or he will reverse 
what the false god is to enhance. And, you know, we talk about that and we go, well, I'm not an idol worshiper. We have to remember anything in my life, any person in my life that God does not have the permission to take away is an idol. There are things in our lives that we make idols that we don't think we've made them idols because it's so subtle. Many years ago, I literally had to take my golf clubs and put them in my garage and put a cover on them and leave them there because I had made a game that I'm, after a lot of years, will never be really good at, an idol. It was all I thought about. I was subscribing to a golf magazine. I was out in the backyard practicing my swing. When I got together with my youth leaders, I was bringing up golf, setting up golf appointments. I, was, I had made golf my idol. It was more important to me than anything else. And I had to put it away until I could see it for what it is, a hobby that gives me joy that will never be my life. And maybe there's something like that in your life. Maybe there's someone like that in your life. You say, God, everything is an open hand because God takes idolatry of any form spiritually. One of the ways that we reflect idolatry is in being ungrateful, ungrateful to what God does. Look at verses 5b through 9 here in chapter 2. I started there. She said, I'll go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool, my linen, my olive oil, and my drink. Therefore, I'll block her path. And God says, I'll block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I'll go back to my husband as at first. And then, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. What's God saying here? He's saying, you were giving credit, Israel, to anything and especially Baal instead of to me. You see, when you and I give credit and thanks to everyone but God, for what we have in life, then I think we're on that path of ingratitude. The key verse in this whole section is there in verse 8. She has not acknowledged, I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, who lavished her, the silver, the gold, for which they used for Baal. See, everything, everything you and I have, every ability you and I have, it is from God. Every opportunity, you and I have is arranged by God and when you and I start giving ourselves the credit it is beginning to move us on a path of ingratitude and that could lead us to a path of being idolatrous I have personally taken the approach that I try to say thank you more often than not about once every two months, I have a good idea. And uh, when I come up with that good idea, wherever it comes from, you know, there, there's been, uh, we, we kind of say it in jest. Uh, I'll say to my wife, hey, what about if we did this? 
And sometimes she'll go, that's great, you're a genius. I know she doesn't mean it, but, uh, you know, but, you know, the reality is, lately it's like, wow, thanks, Lord, for putting that idea in my head. You know, thanks, Lord, for getting me for, you know, one year, somebody needed a ride to the airport. It was an emergency. And I picked them up, and we were headed to O'Hare, and it was 5 o'clock. And they needed to catch a 6.30 flight. And I remember when we got them packed in the car, I simply said, God, please speed us on our way. I drove Chicago speed limit. Okay, That's always 10 miles above, but it's, everybody allows it. So I was in, I was in the, the zone. We got in. There are these pockets of traffic that just seem to move. And God, we got into one of those pockets. I had them from west of Wheaton to O'Hare in 42 minutes. And when we pulled up as I got out, I just said, thank you, God, for speeding us on our way. It took me an hour, to get, an hour and a half to get home. <laughs> you know, I was like, wait a minute. Can't you just carry it on a little bit further? When I start to give myself the credit, I take the credit away from God. That's what he's saying here. When you start taking the credit away from me, I'm going to start pulling back Israel. When I fail to acknowledge the work of God in my life, I begin to drift. When I drift, I lose sight of God's reality. See, I cannot continue to enjoy the gifts of God and just continue to ignore the giver of the gifts. The Lord gives. We saw that in Job, right? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Verse 9 is significant. As I said before, Baal, the god of agriculture and fertility. So the things that Baal is supposed to provide, they're going to be stripped away. And at the same time, we somehow think we can... Live on both sides. I can stay connected to God and yet still connected to that which is fundamentally opposed to God. And God says, I won't have it. Insincere gratitude is just a form of hypocrisy. And the third thing that God points out in chapter 2 is spiritual idolatry is reflected in that hypocrisy. Pick it up at the end of verse 10. God says, I'm going to expose her. Verse 11, I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I'm going to ruin what she said was her pay from Baal. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the day she's burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, now. And so let me just stop there, verse 13. The nation went through all the motions of the traditional feasts and celebrations and worship, but it was just external. See, we have God over here, we have Baal over here, we're going to worship both. That way we'll be doubly blessed. Be careful we don't follow the same path. Make sure that coming here on Sunday and 
wearing the right clothes and singing songs and smiling at the right places and laughing at bad jokes from the pastor, make sure and, and maybe throwing in a couple uh, dollars in the offering box back there, make sure that's not the core of your spiritual life. You see, because the real key isn't how we do things here. The real key is how do I live my life between the Sundays? Does what takes place here make a difference in the decisions I make tomorrow? Sometimes it happens in very natural ways as we struggle along. We, we, we kind of live that kind of, I'm a Sunday Christian only. God exposes that hypocrisy. We might find ourselves dazed and in trouble by our bad decisions. We might find that we just don't get any true joy or satisfaction out of talking about God or thinking about Him. We might find that we struggle with an emptiness that wasn't there before. But that's not what God wants. God longs for relationship with you and me. And that brings us to our final section here. As a wounded lover, God continually pursues those He loves. Here's the amazing thing about God. And and we read already that section in chapter 2 that I'm going to allure her. I'm going to draw her back. I'm going to win her over. I'm going to woo her. I'm going to uh, just, you know, when we were first dating, I learned that Charlene liked daisies. Just at the corner of LaSalle and Clark Street was LaSalle Flower. Not LaSalle and Clark. It had to be LaSalle and Chicago. Just down the street from LaSalle and from Moody, there was a LaSalle Flowers. You know what they did every week? They ran a daisy special. Now, I am a very, very poor college student at the time. But I found the money to scrape together and every so often would buy some daisies for Charlene. Why? I, I, wanted, her to, I wanted her to see this guy. I wanted to allure her. I wanted to, and it worked. 41 years later, she's still kind of sticking around with me. But God says, I want to do that. I want to draw you back. I want to draw you away. I don't want you looking at those other guys. I want you looking at this guy. I want you to draw you away. You see, God will let you drift. He will let you and me make a mess of our lives. He will give us all the rope we need to tie ourselves in knots. But only God can walk alongside us in such a way as to be there and repeatedly remind us that he loves us. There is a change of tone beginning in verse 14. We've seen that. I'll draw those I love into a place of solitude so we can be united. Verse 15, I'm going to turn the valley of Achor. That word literally means trouble into a door of hope. You know, some of you have been there, haven't you? Some of us have been there, and we can talk about it. We can talk about the valley of trouble. Sometimes we, were in, we entered into the valley of trouble by our own doing. Sometimes we entered into the valley of trouble because somebody else sinned against us. We entered into the valley of trouble. And the valley of trouble is a valley of pain. The valley of trouble is a valley of heartache. The valley of trouble is a valley of sorrow. And God says, I want you to know 
There is something on the other side of the valley of trouble and it is a door of hope. And that door of hope is found in relationship with Jesus Christ for us who are looking back at this passage. He's been faithful. He loves. He forgives. He draws. And I think the message of Hosea is tied up right here. Why pursue the emptiness of a false spiritual relationship when the God of the universe wants relationship with you? Look at verse 16. There's a new relationship. You're going to call me my husband, not my master. Verse 17, there's a new loyalty. Verse 18, there's a new peace of security and safety. Verse 19 is a new commitment. Verses 19 through 20. Note the word betrothed. That's the language of the the bride price. That's the last removal of any objections that could be raised by the father of the bride. One scholar puts it this way. God himself gives his gifts of righteousness, justice, love, compassion, and faithfulness to cement this relationship into an unbreakable union. Notice verse 21 and 22, there's a new response. I'm going, to break, I'm going to open up the skies again. I'm going to give you what was taken away. I'm going to restore to you your crops and your economy, not because of Baal, but because of my love. And after all of that, we come back to the closing scene of the drama in chapter 3. As a wounded lover, God pays the price for a restored relationship. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. By the way, those measures of barley come out to about 430 pounds. It was a great price. Go buy your wife out of prostitution, Hosea, and show her your love again, unconditional love. Can you imagine the depth of that love? Can you imagine the depth of commitment? Can you imagine the depth of forgiveness required of Hosea? He loved her so much he was willing to pay whatever price to bring her back into relationship with himself. We call that redemption. Restoring relationship. We are redeemed because Christ paid the price for our sin and redeemed us, bought us back. Hosea restored the relationship with her. He expressed commitment. Notice what he says. I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way for you. I'm going to treat you faithfully and I ask you to be faithful. He restored that relationship. And then the reason we have that is at the very end of chapter 3. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods and afterward the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days 
the reality is God has already done for us what Hosea did for Gomer. He has already bought us back. He has already paid the price. He sent Jesus to pay the price for our sin. Jesus died on the cross to buy back, to redeem you and me. The reality is like the nation of Israel, we had done nothing to deserve God's love, but he still gives it. And many of us say we've done a lot to ignore and reject God's love, but he still gives it. As we look at this drama of Hosea, we see our God as a wounded lover and yet still willing to do whatever is necessary to draw us back into relationship with him. And my encouragement to us is this morning, can we recommit to following God wholly who lovingly pursues us in relationship? Let's pray. Father, a lot here. And as we just take time to process all of this, we are truly amazed by who you are, by how much you love us. Lord, we're, I am truly blown away by a man like Hosea who would be willing to be that obedient to do the things that you asked him to do, to illustrate to the people the depth of your pain and the depth of your love. Thank you that we can celebrate your grace. May we, in the power of the Holy Spirit, determine to do nothing that tarnishes that grace, but to follow you wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name, amen.